Hello again, everybody. Welcome one more time. If this is your first time, welcome. If you've been here before, welcome back uh, to my podcast, Looking Back, Moving Forward. This is Anthony Harris, and today I'm going to talk about some things that are on my on my heart and in my head, just some things that have been going on in the news lately. I want to share my thoughts with you and, and generate some, some thought and maybe some conversation, whether it's in your home, in your workplace, wherever it happens to be. I think these are things we, we have to have conversations about. We don't necessarily need to argue with each other and um, be belligerent and uncivil, but you know, let's, let's have discussions and talk about some of these things. What, the first thing I want to talk about is, is a Derek Chauvin um, conviction that happened uh, last week on Tuesday, I believe, and it was a time that I think many Americans who uh, were watching it, not just Americans, but people all over the world had their eyes glued to this. In fact, a buddy of mine who lives in, in Great Britain, uh, as soon as the verdict was announced, he sent me an email celebrating the decision of the verdict of the jury. So it was not something that was confined to this country, as as was true with the protests after George Floyd's death that were reactions and protests and marches and so forth all over the world protesting that. So uh, that the point is that it, it is it has certainly had an impact on our country and our nation, uh, our country and our world, rather. And one of the things that when I first heard the verdict, like lots of people, we will, probably, we will remember for years to come, where were we when we heard the verdict? I remember where I was when the O.J. Simpson verdict came. I remember where I was when 9-11 happened. I remember where I was when uh, January 6th, the insurrection. I remember where, where I was when John F. Kennedy was killed. I remember where I was when Robert Kennedy was killed. And I remember where I was when Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. Those, the point is that there, there are some uh, monu- uh, historic events that happen in our lives. And, you know, we'll always remember as time goes on where we were, we may not always remember what we were doing at the time, but I think we will have some recollection of where we were and what was going on in, in, at the moment. And and when the Derek Chauvin verdict came down, I was sitting in my living room watching television. My wife and I were just sort of sitting on edge, and I had this uh, mixture of feelings. I was hopeful, uh, but not necessarily optimistic that a jury, the jury would convict Derek Chauvin of these murder charges. And I wanted to believe it would happen, but also remember what happened to Rodney King and the jury that acquitted those officers for for beating him. So it, it was not a slam dunk. It was not something that was a foregone conclusion, although the, the prosecution in that case, in the uh, Derek Chauvin case, did an excellent job. I think the defense was very weak. Obviously, they didn't have very much to uh, to work with, considering that the videos that were shown during the prosecution's presentation of its case that that alone was enough to convict him. I mean, you just don't. How do you defend the indefensible? How do you defend a man putting the entire weight of his body on the knee of another human being who is not even resisting and causing him any? Trouble is not a threat to him. He just wanted to see that man dead. And I was reading an article recently how someone 
uh, talked about, if you look at Derek Chauvin's face, the look on his face as he was murdering George Floyd, it, it spoke volumes. This man was, he was just indifferent. I think that's the best way to describe it. And the person who wrote this article described it as it being indifferent. I just don't care. And, and that has to do, it, it relates, I think, to the this dehumanization of black people that you know, you're so un, inconsequential, you're so immaterial, you're so insignificant that it's it's no big deal to just keep my knee on your neck and and watch you die. I think we've so much, there's so much evidence of those things continuing to happen. But nevertheless, he, Derek Chauvin was convicted. Um, the jury surprised lots of people, I think. Maybe they, some people thought that he would get convicted on maybe one of those three counts, but the jury did its job and did its due diligence and found enough evidence to convict him all, on all three charges. And if anybody watched the, uh, the proceedings, watched the trial, and noticed Derek Chauvin, he hardly ever changed emotions. He hardly, I mean, he had his mask on, but whenever he took off his mask, you never saw the guy express any remorse. He constantly had his head down appearing to be writing something, and I kept wondering, what is he writing? Why is he writing? What could he possibly be doing? Is he doing this for the camera? Is he doing this for the jury? He's trying to show either he is indifferent to what's going on, he just doesn't care what's going on, you know, that whole attitude that he displayed. But when the judge read the jury's verdict, I think he had a slightly different look from his eyes. His eyes started to dart around a little bit, <clears throat> and I think the reality kind of set in on him that um, he was a, he was about to do some hard time. He's going to be locked up. He's not going home. And as we know, during the trial, or right at the end of the trial, um, and, and in the aftermath of the trial, there, there have been some people who tried to make a big deal out of what uh, Auntie Maxine said, Representative Maxine Waters said uh, the night before the, the case went to the jury. In fact, the judge went so far as to say um, Representative Waters uh, should just keep basically keep her mouth shut and that what she said was could be grounds for an appeal, which I'm not a lawyer, don't even play one on TV, but I think most legal scholars will tell you that, no, that's not a basis for an appeal. Uh, what she said, and, and let's just dissect for a moment what it is she said, what had people so upset, what had... Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and some of these other Republicans ready to um, censure her, censure um, uh, Maxine Waters and wanted to kick her out of the United States Congress. What did she say? She, the thing that they were responding to, because what she said up to that point about being confrontational was something that was very, uh, very normal, very much expected, yeah, wasn't, wasn't dangerous, wasn't inciting or anything. And then when she used the word confrontational, people just clutched their pearls and said, oh my gosh, she is she is advocating violence. No, she was not advocating violence. That's no way she was doing that. What she was doing is, and I've heard her provide an explanation for this since then, and it makes so much sense to me because she talks about the use of confrontation back in the 60s, how we were in the streets to confront Bull Connor in Birmingham, to uh, confront George Wallace in Alabama, to confront Lester Maddox in Georgia. 
the list goes on and on where racism and and segregation is there was confrontation there and it was all peaceful confrontation the only people who um, were on that uh, treated violently were the were the demonstrators so that's what I think she was referencing in, in her heart, her head, and that's what I accepted as. Uh, many of those on the other side of the aisle saw that as, again, how dare she say that there should be more confrontation. And what she is talking about, and I accept that, as I said, that she's talking about how we confront racism. We have to sometimes be, uh, we have to be assertive. We have to be, uh, we have to be courageous. And, and nowhere in her statements could anybody extrapolate from what she said that she was saying let's go burn down some buildings let's go um, hurt some people nothing like what uh, Donald J Trump did and and his uh, his acolytes uh, on Ju on January 6 who uh, very clearly and unmistakably incited people to go and invade the capitol so my hats off to uh, Auntie Maxie I think you stood your ground. You have made plain what it was you you said and what you intended to say. Obviously, there will be people who will try to um, put a frame around that, that statement and declare that you are unfit to serve in the United States Congress, that you have thrown gasoline onto, I mean, you throw yeah, gasoline onto a fire and, and, and shame on you. And there were people even criticizing um, President Biden because of, of what he said. But if you recall, Biden said he's going to wait for uh, the, the verdict. And he kind of said, I kind of know what the verdict, what I would like for the verdict to be. And he didn't say what that was, but I think we understood what he meant. But he's, you, if you remember, he's he made that statement after the jury was sequestered. And, and when Maxine Waters said what she said, the jury was not sequestered. But the fact that the judge admonished and, and reminded uh, the jurors that they are not to watch television, they are not to um, listen and read newspapers, anything that would, uh, would prejudice them in that case. So uh, I think legal scholars will tell you that e in either case with what Biden said and what Maxine Waters said, uh, I think that's just um, uh, empty threats uh, from people who think that 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 this is there's some kind of moral equivalence, you know, that that both sides do this. That that what happened in Washington D.C. Um, is about the same as what happened when Maxine Waters said what she said, and that's a false equivalency. And and we just have to call it what it is. And again, the the reaction on the conservative side, the particularly the right wing extremist side, has been just uh, and it's been predictable, I think. I think any time a police officer is convicted, and that's a rare, very rare uh, occurrence where a, uh, a police officer, a white police officer in particular, is, is charged and is convicted for the death, whether it's manslaughter or murder, the death of a black person. So that was, that was something to, to note as a part of, of U.S. history. But again, the people on the other side uh, the right-wing extremists, and, and and I hate to say extremists because um, I guess they're all sort of extremists. I mean, if you if if you're a Fox <laughs> viewer and Tucker Carlson and, and Laura Ingram viewers in particular, uh, you'll know that they were pretty upset 
about the um, about the the verdict. In, in fact, one of those shows they said the jury uh, acquitted. I mean, the jury convicted Derek Chauvin because they were afraid. They were afraid to uh, to do anything other than convict him because they were afraid that there would be riots, that there would be demonstrations and looting and violence in the streets. And they don't give any any credit, any credence to the judicial the judicial system and the the collective wisdom of those twelve jurors that they came to their decision based upon the evidence presented. But no, in Tucker Carlson's view, the only reason um, he was convicted was that the jurors were concerned that if they found him innocent, that there would be some violence and looting and so forth. And it's just typical Fox News and Tucker Carlson um, attitudes, um, perspectives that that do absolutely nothing to heal. This guy is is in business to make money for Fox. Uh, he is. He's the guy that also talked about this um, replacement theory. And he got in hot water with particularly the uh, Anti-Defamation League and, and other civil rights groups in the country. When he, when he went on one of his shows talking about how immigrants coming into this country uh, are going to replace him and, and presumably other whites in this country, that that replacement is what we have to, um, we have to resist. We have to fight against replacement. Of course, their whole replacement theory has its roots in Nazism. And if you remember in Charlottesville, when those um, neo-Confederates and neo-Nazis and those people demonstrated, that was their chant, Jews will not replace us. Jews will not replace us. That was a fear they have that uh, someone was going to replace them. And, and Tucker Carlson and his, his um, followers they believe that as immigration occurs in this country, particularly from brown people and from non-European countries, that somehow uh, his status as a white person in this country is going to be diminished and that he has to, he, he's advocating, let's just stop this immigration because they're going to replace us. These brown and black people are going to replace us. And, and obviously that's their fear. That's for many of them, that's their fear that they are going to lose their status. They're going to lose their power. And and I ran across an article the other day in, um, in CNN. They talked about, uh, that was a guy with the Brookings Institute. Uh, last name is Fry, F-R-E-Y, if you'll take a look at that. And and he, he says something very sobering and something I think the Tucker Carlson's of the world need to pay attention to, and that is, because of the what's called the browning and the graying of America, which means that people are getting older and they're staying older a lot longer and there are more brown people coming into this country, that the demographics are going to change. And, and while some people lament that and, and because their racism and their bigotry and their xenophobia call for them to resist those kinds of changes, what this uh, study shows that if you end immigration, if you cut back on immigration, it's going to affect the economy. You're going to have fewer people in the workforce because the birth rate in this country is going down. And if you don't replace individuals to, uh, to be in the workforce, um, and, and immigrants are, are, are certainly feeling, feeling that, uh, that need in this country. And that, that, uh, um, so they are, they're not looking at the fact that if we 
if we reduce immigration. They are thinking that if we reduce it, that's going to maintain our power base, that uh, our status and our, our power is going to be maintained. But what these authors are saying in this study, and I'll just kind of read a quote here, says, with or without immigration, the white share of the population will decline in the coming decades, census projections show. But if immigration is reduced or eliminated, America will grow older, with many fewer working-age adults available to support the exploding number of retirees. And that would not only slow overall economic growth, multiple projections have found, but also would increase pressure for cuts in the Social Security and Medicare benefits that provide a life line to the older whites most drawn to the rights anti-immigrants argue. And the projection shows that uh, we're going to be dealing with lower population growth and an aging population. And the only way that we're going to be able to keep our labor force growing and vital is through immigration. And the, the, the policy writer goes on to say, it's a matter of math. I never understood why people who are anti-immigration can't understand the math of the whole thing because it's quite simple. That um, if you reduce, again, sounds like a broken record, but it has to be said. If you cut back, if you reduce the number of people immigrating to this country, there are not enough people available to take care of retirees and Medicare, pay into the system, and they, that's just cutting off your nose to spite your face. So people need to understand that. That's just a, it's just a given. Also, I want to uh, switch over now to something that I heard today. Um, a number of guests, uh, I won't say a number, but there's one particular guest on Fox News, uh, Lindsey Graham from South Carolina, the Lindsey Graham, the, the famous flip-flopper, the person who is... He constantly puts his finger up, finger up to the wind to see which direction is going, and that's the direction he'll go. But anyway, someone, he was on Fox News today, on this Sunday, and um, Chris Wallace asked him about systemic racism in the police department or in this country, and and almost without a, uh, skipping a beat, Graham said, there's no, there's no racism in this country. There's no systemic racism in this country. It just doesn't exist. No. It just doesn't exist. And the proof is that we elected Barack Obama twice, and now we have a, a black uh, Asian uh, vice president. He says that that equals um, none. We, that means that we're a non-racist country because we elected uh, a vice president this time, and Barack Obama served as president twice. But what he seems to so, so conveniently to forget is that, that we just, we, we've seen this uptick in, right-wing extremism when Trump came into office. We have seen so many uh, examples of, uh, of anti-Asian uh, anti violence. We have seen just this increase in, in hatred and police killings and, and just things. And, and he says, oh, that's not systemic racism. He said, oh, just got a few bad apples. Uh, and well, you know, you have to at some point say, it's not the apple that's bad. Maybe the whole tree is bad and somebody needs to do something about that tree. But anyway, what was truly hypocritical about what Lindsey Graham said is that someone played a, a video that he made a few years ago, I'm not sure exactly when it was, and the person asking him, 
is systemic racism an issue in this country? He said, oh, yes. Yeah, sure it is, because I have a, a less of a chance of being profiled and stopped by the police than a black man has. You know, that's, that's the true definition of systemic racism and profiling. But now he has changed his view on that and says, no, 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 there's no such thing as systemic racism in this country, just a few bad apples, and we should just forget about it. We should subscribe to the Brett Favre uh, way of looking at things. And, of course, Brett Favre has been in the news lately when he, first of all, said basically what Laura Ingram said some years ago, that uh, athletes should just shut up and dribble the ball. Uh, he said that uh, protests, when, when professional athletes protest uh, injustice in this country, they are doing more, they're causing more turmoil than they are good. And he thinks that when people go to a ball game, they just want to see a ball game. They don't want to see people kneeling or uh, protesting in any kind of way. But you never heard Brett Favre speak out against what what caused it or what motivated these people to protest in the first place, what caused these athletes to protest in the, in the first place. He never talked about um, the injustice, the racial injustice, the profiling, the murders of, of young black men and women by police, unarmed young black men and women by police, I might add. He never addresses that. He just looks at, okay, I don't like, uh, I don't think athletes should um, express their political views and they should just dribble the ball. Well, it, obviously, what's hypocritical about that is that he doesn't hesitate to um, advocate and, and talk about his, uh, using his platform to talk about political views, which are very conservative. And then he, he went one step further in another interview <clears throat> and claims that uh, he didn't think David, uh, Derek Chauvin intended to kill George Floyd. Now, if you haven't heard that interview or haven't read about it, you need to take a look at it. He actually uses those words. He said, I don't think he meant it. He said he shouldn't have done it, but I don't think he meant to kill the man. You know, that's, that's Brett Favre, NFL Hall of Famer. Played for many years with the Green Bay Packers from my home state of Mississippi. Lives in, in my hometown near Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And it's just, uh, it's just regrettable, but it also speaks to the privilege that Brett Favre uh, enjoys as a, as a white male. Is that he doesn't, these, these things don't affect him. They don't, he doesn't have to worry about being racially profiled. He doesn't have to worry about, uh, being in the shoes of, of that lieutenant, that army officer in, in Virginia, I believe it was, who was, um, who was pepper sprayed. It, he, he put his arms outside the car as he was instructed to do, and he still got pepper sprayed. No, Brett Favre would never, it would never be treated that way. No. So he doesn't understand what it's like to be black. He doesn't understand the calculus that black people have to do every single day when they get in the car. He does not understand that conversation that black parents have with their young black sons and now their daughters about how to get home safely. He doesn't get that. He doesn't understand it because his white privilege has afforded him, again, the privilege of not having to deal with that. And for him, it's one thing to just not be aware of it and not be aware that he has a privilege, but it's quite another to be critical of others who are trying to bring attention to systemic racism in this country. <clears throat> and I just say, shame on you, Brett Favre. I just have to put it out there. Um, one other thing I want to talk about is that uh, we've heard people say, um, 
we shouldn't elect Democrats because Democrats are going to turn this country into a socialist country. That's what Donald Trump said. In fact, Donald Trump has been so wrong about so much. He actually said that if um, Joe Biden is elected, the stock market was going to crash. That hasn't happened yet. And Biden has been in office almost 100 days, so it's, it's, not, uh, it's not likely to happen. I think the stock market is, is doing what the stock market is supposed to do. But I hear those people who, who say, well, you know, Democrats just want to um, destroy democracy. They want to, um, they, they want to turn this country into a socialist country. They want, and some even say Democrats want to change this country into a communist country. And, 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 and I, just, I just marvel at the, the, um, the short-sightedness, and I'll be kind when I say the short-sightedness because it's really kind of idiotic, to be honest, when, when I hear people say that. And I think there's one thing that <clears throat> I just consider Exhibit A, and I have an Exhibit B to share with in just a moment, but Exhibit A, to look at who is trying to, really, who's trying to destroy democracy in this country. Is it Democrats or is it Republicans? And I don't want to generalize here too much, but you think about what Donald Trump had, what he has done, what he did leading up to the 2020 election, what he did after the 2020 election. Keep in mind that in 2016, there was evidence that Russia um, interfered with the, the election in 2016. They did the same thing in 2020. They interfered with the election, and, and their thing is they don't really care who the president is, even though they had a preference for Trump. Their goal is to sow discontent and to foment uh, distrust among voters in this country to, to, to create this, this myth that the voting system, the electoral system in this country is unfair and is rigged and you should not have uh, trust in it. There's no integrity in it. It's all uh, rigged and so forth. That, that was the aim of Russia to get American voters to distrust their system, to get them to distrust the electoral system, its democracy, and all of those things. Well, here comes Donald Trump, who has done the exact same thing the Russians wanted him to do, and that is question the integrity of the electoral system, question the, the, the motivations of people who are trying to do their jobs, you know, he's, he's just, he has done such disservice to this country. The, the legacy that this man has left and continues to leave is just amazing. And then you see these, these state legislat legislatures run around the country that have um, passed these voter suppression laws based on the big lie. And the big lie, of course, we all know what it is. Donald Trump still tells that lie. He becomes a liar, and those people who are promoting this, I call them, you are a liars as well, for basing public policy on a lie. That's basically what you're doing. You are creating public policy based on a lie. And it's shameful. I mean, if, if democracy is going to be destroyed, it's going to be people who intentionally try to get people to lose faith in the system, uh, try to create the doubt in their minds that that the system has no integrity, the system is flawed, the system is, is, um, is unfair to certain groups in this country. And, and I think that's, that's what the Russians wanted Americans to be divided over. 
That's what Donald Trump has wanted Americans to be divided over. And I will say both of them have, have been quite successful, and particularly as these state legislators have, Republican legislators have picked up the mantle and run with it and, and said, yes, we will, we will further divide this country. We will further suppress votes. You, you think about what, one of the things that, in my mind, makes a democracy strong, makes any country strong, is to have as many people participate in the in the electoral process as possible. Make it easy, make it convenient for people to vote. Instead, the Republicans here are saying, no, we don't want that many people voting. Uh, you know, it wasn't, you know, the, the reason <laughs> Biden won was massive turnout, not massive fraud. And the massive turnout is what they fear. The policies are not resonating with people, uh, even though 75 million people voted for uh, Donald Trump. It's still um, their message is has been rejected. Um, Democrats now control the House and Senate and the, and the presidency, so they they are their only game, only tool they have left in their toolbox is to promote this notion that we need to reduce the level of participation in the electoral process because they know full well when there's massive voter turnout, Democrats usually do pretty well. So it just stands to reason for them, if you can't beat them on the policy, let's, let's beat them on in the legislature and, and discourage and reduce and diminish the number of people who, are, who want to vote. And that's, that's Jim Crowism, that's, that's it. That's Jim Crow 3.0. It's not 2.0. It's 3.0. And we just have to call it out and call it for what it is, that the big lie is still out there. I, I was reading the other day that I believe it's Arizona. They are putting huge amounts of money into an audit of the 2020 presidential election. And I want you to understand that we are now in 2021. Joe Biden is the president. Arizona Republicans say, no, we're going to go and have an audit of the vote. Now, keep in mind, there have already been two audits, and they found no massive fraud. But yet, the big lie is there. I mean, it's like a bad penny. It just keeps showing up. The big lie is, is forcing these people, is, is motivating these people to go and do this audit and hire people. One of the people who's been hired to... Uh, conduct this audit with somebody who was a, a vocal supporter of, of Donald Trump. So you can imagine just how objective <laughs> that individual is going to be. So, you know, th there's no shame in their game, it seems. And, and they just, they're doing these, coming up with these laws. But I predict that they're going to go to court. They're going to defend them. They're going to spend money in their, um, out of their state coffers to, to defend themselves. And but who knows what happens when it gets to the U.S. Supreme Court? I mean, it's, they're already 6-3 uh, conservative, and you just don't know uh, how people like Clarence Thomas and, and Gorsuch and these people, how they would vote. They might just say, oh, yeah, these states can do whatever they want to do. They can suppress vote. They can do whatever they want to do. Let's, let's hope they don't do that. But I predict that a lot of these uh, laws that have been passed in these states are going to be uh, there are going to be lawsuits filed, and they will end up losing a lot of those cases, if not all of those cases. The final thing I want to talk about, and that, again, getting back to this notion that Democrats want 
socialism, uh, that um, Republicans are the last line of defense against this country becoming a socialist country. Now, keep in mind that when they think of socialism, they really don't know what they're talking about many times. They just, and they don't give it much thought. I was reading an, a, a piece the other day, and it says, and I'll just read the whole thing to you. It was written by a person named Allison Rennie from North Miami Beach, and it resonated with me, and it it, it captures the 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 hypocrisy of those who claim that we're becoming a, a socialist country. Here's what she wrote. She said, be yourself. That's the title of it. Be yourself. If you vote a Republican because you fear socialism, then live your truth. Okay, I'm going to read that again. If you voted Republican because you fear socialism, then live your truth. Do not accept Social Security, Medicare, or Medicaid. Avoid public beaches, parks, and libraries. Do not allow your children to attend tax-supported schools or to take advantage of food programs. Drive only on toll roads. Do not call 911 unless you intend to pay for services rendered. And those are things that happen all the time because that's, that's in the it's for the public good. It's for the greater good to, to make these services available to people. But yet, they, they would see this as, uh, as, as socialism. And, and these are examples of how the government is taking tax money and doing something for the public good. And in their mind, if you're taking money for public good, then that's socialism. If you take pu public money and use it for private purposes, that's okay. So I always tell my conservative friends who say you know, they decry and they, they just just have a hissy fit and think that we Democrats want to become socialists. And, no, come on now. You, don't you, did you, didn't your kids go to public schools? Don't you enjoy driving on, on a public highway? Uh, don't you, you know, when you get your stimulus check, are you going to send it back because you think that's, a social, that's an act of socialism? So I think that the hypocrisy needs to be called out, and I just wanted to share that with you. Um, I think that's all I want to say for right now. I, I've just um, had some things on my mind and in my heart that I wanted to, to get out. There are probably lots more things that I'll say for a different occasion. But just in summary, I just, you know, the, the Derek Chauvin case was uh, a moment in history for us. I don't think it necessarily means that the tide has turned. I think this is one case. This is one example. Uh, I, I think when you look at the big picture, we need to see more of these kinds of, of um, verdicts. Um, this doesn't need to be an anomaly. This needs to be the, the rule, not the exception, that when police officers uh, unjustifiably kill somebody, they need to be held accountable. <clears throat> what charges they, they face, We'll let the, the DA and, and those people do it, but some accountability has to be uh, in place there, it's, or, or it's never going to stop. I mean, we, we almost, it's almost seemed, it seems almost as though there's a, you know, police officers many times take the view that they're warriors and not servants. They're, they're public servants, and uh, so many times they take the view that I have to, you know, you, you look at some of the, the gear they wear, it's, it's like they're going to war. They have to be warriors, and and when you have a warrior mentality of rather than a servant mentality, it's easy to you know 
what happened to the gentleman, the, the lieutenant who uh, pepper sprays somebody. You know, when you, you feel that you have all of these this armor on, you have your vest, your bullet, bullet, bulletproof vest, and you have your helmet, and you have all of these weapons on you, and you feel like you're going to war. And I think that's, that's probably where um, a lot of this comes from, when people have all of that equipment on them, and they feel like they are soldiers and they're warriors, and rather than being servants of the public, it gets in the way. So anyway, I think that's about it. As I said before, I'll just stop it here and um, say one more time, uh, get your vaccination. Go go get vaccinated. Uh, wear your masks. Uh, don't buy into this notion that, you know, it's a, it's a hoax. That's what some people are still saying that I was reading the other day that Ted Nugent, this conservative right-wing entertainer, he, he, for, for so long he was saying COVID was a, was a hoax and he was not going to get a vaccine and he wasn't going to wear a mask. And now he's, he, he, contact, he contracted um, COVID and made him pretty sick. But I'm not sure if that did much for his belief system, but it certainly, um, I think his, um, his body <laughs> uh, sent him a message that you better take this stuff seriously, folks. So anyway, I want to wish everybody a, a good week, and I will be coming back here soon and talking to you about some more things that are in my head and on my heart. Take care. Bye-bye.